Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you all for coming out. My name is Dan Albrick. I'm with uh, Leopardo. I am a program's co-chair for this month, and then I guess I take over position as chair, but I will still have my trusty sidekick, Jeanette, who is now the chair, Jeanette Outlaw with OFS Brands. Um, today's program is being podcast, so if you do have any questions, which I believe we would like uh, some participation, kind of a fireside chat throughout. So if you have a question, please raise your hand and the microphone will uh, be brought around to you. Um, our next program is um, on April 8th, as mentioned in, in previous events. Always mark your calendars for the second Thursday of every month. That's when our lunches will be held here, same time, same place. Our April 8th program will be uh, focused credit where credit is due. So, uh, and we're gonna talk about financial lending. It's always a topic. We always pass out the surveys towards the end of every uh, lunch. And always a topic that comes up is uh, commercial real estate lending. What's happening, where's it going? And uh, we're gonna explore that then next month. Um, speaking of giving credit where credit due, I wanted to thank our moderator today, Sandra Collins. This program has been put together based on a white paper that she had uh, written. And then we assembled the perspectives based around that people that she's done business with and the people we thought would uh, be great additions to fill in the, uh, the panel. So the premise for today's uh, program, kind of how the t uh, who's on first now, man bites dog, and kind of uh, turn this thing up a little bit before getting into the individual speakers. The premise of the, of the presentation, the general statement is, uh, since 2008, the decline in commercial real estate industry has been driven by decreases in indu industrial production, job losses, demand for office and retail space, fewer durable goods shipments, and reduced consumer spending. The value of both existing commercial properties and land has continued to decline sharply, suggesting that banks face significant further deterioration in their corporate real estate loans, thus many loans will not be extended or renewed for some landlords. Tenants are either challenged with downsizing while juggling the remaining costs of carry on their vacant spaces or taking advantage of the feeding frenzy and holding their, excuse me, and holding their landlords hostage in a highly competitive lease rate market. Demand for commercial property, which is sensitive to trends in the labor market, has declined significantly and vacancy rates have decreased. The market will take significant time to rebound as lenders continue to face significant challenges brought on by lower cash flows from properties under loan, defaults of landlords and stiffer government regulations. To see any improvement, the office sector requires job growth to fuel demand for additional space and the industrial sector needs a rise in production. So what effects does the economic, uh, economic environment have on the segments that we're gonna explore today? And to announce our panelists, today's uh, presentation is moderated by Sandra Collins, who's a real estate services manager for US Cellular. Um, she's been active in uh, commercial real estate for 33 years. She has had experience as a broker, in-house developers broker representative, managing director of brokerage operations, asset and property management groups, and in-house corporate real estate manager. She is the Corporate Real Estate Services Manager for U.S. Cellular, responsible for creating corporate real estate strategy, coordinating new projects and negotiating leases to maximize the company's real estate portfolio, which consists of 38 corporate sites, five call centers, 1,020,000 square feet, and 460 retail stores, to get specific, 950,434,000 square feet. Also along with there, we have the speakers. We have Stanley Stallworth, who's a partner in the real estate practice. Chicago office as a member of the real estate practice group for Sidley Austin. He joined the firm in 1990. Mr. Stallworth has represented property owners, developers, real estate investors, and lenders in many types for commercial real estate matters. 
Next we have Don Pafford, who is uh, Senior Vice President of the Commercial Real Estate and Market Manager for U.S. Bank Chicago office. Uh, he joined the Chicago team in uh, March of 08, where he oversees a portfolio in excess of $3 billion. He leads a team of 30-plus commercial real estate professionals who provide credit and non-credit solutions to public REITs, developers, and investors around the country. Next, we have Todd Rich, who is the head of asset management for Tishman Spire in Chicago, with oversight over uh, 13 million square feet of prime office real estate. Previously, Mr. Rich was based in London, focusing on asset management for Tishman Spire's UK and European properties. He's also worked in Tishman Spire's New York and Washington, D.C. offices. And last but not least, we have Bob Ramon, who is Senior Vice President of C.B. Richard Ellis. He joined C.B. Richard Ellis in 1982 and has over 25 years of experience as a real estate professional in the Chicago area. He has uh, served as Senior Vice President and Managing Officer of C.B. Richard Ellis' Lincolnshire office, supervising a network of brokers specializing in office brokerage. So a little interesting tidbit here uh, to make it interesting. Before becoming a real estate professional, Bob was the professional musician playing piano and touring with Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Little Anthony, The Shirelles, and Tommy James. All right, how about an applause for our panelists today? He's gonna, he's gonna give us a little ditty afterwards, so we're gonna hold him to that. So, Sandra, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Well, um, thank you, Dan, and thank you all for being here today on a rainy day. Uh, I'm Sandra Collins, and I am a tenant. I feel like I'm in an AA meeting. Um, <laughs> we're going to start this off today, and we like to leave it casual. And Stan, I didn't mean to stand That's in front okay. of you. Um, if we have questions for the panelists, you know, we're going to try and get to them and keep this in a time frame that we can get you all out of here uh, for the Real Estate Awards dinner tonight. Um, I've been in the business, as you heard, for not quite since the dinosaurs roamed the earth, but a good while. And there, I've been through several cycles. There are a lot of changes that I have personally seen over the last year, year and a half, that are fairly dramatic. And uh, Paul Beitler and I get together every now and again to talk about what's happening out there. And Paul actually came up with the name for Man Bites Dog for this series and helped put together the outline. So I don't know if Paul's here, but if not, I want to thank him or have somebody go back and tell him that we gave him some credit. Uh, one of the things as we were discovering uh, Stan Stallworth, uh, who is our corporate counsel, uh, and we're going through a lease on a renewal is an innocuous clause in our lease that said that the tenant, subtenant, assignees, et cetera, et cetera, must abide by the regulations of the lender. And I wrote out to the side, that's great, but what are they? And that's going to lead us to a whole discussion that I think you'll find very interesting on Shahara law. Because as it turns out, our lender was an Islamic bank. So we're going to get to that pretty soon. Um, so from the tenant's perspective, and I'm going to just walk over here so I can see this, don't fall off the stage. Um, we're now asking the landlord and the lender both 
for their financials. And I don't remember a time that that has ever happened. Uh, we are insisting on, on covering our tenant allowances by creating construction escrows. This leads to another area that we'll, you know, Bob can address as the broker, but we are um, wanting to make sure as a tenant that we don't have a tenant broker that's done all the things that he should do and then have the landlord not pay him his commission. And Bob can address how the brokerage com uh, community is looking at some of these things. We're also negotiating uh, the SNDA agreements up front. We're attaching it because we do not want to be in a position where we're in a lease and the landlord defaults and we don't have a non-disturbance non agreement. Now that's pretty standard, except we found out that some of the non-disturbance agreements that we had in place were with a former owner or lender. So um, we've got a number of other things up here on the tenant roster, but um, let's just address these things and, and we're gonna have some interaction with the panel here um, Don, when's the last time you were asked for your financials on a, a uh, Never have. We're a public company, so clearly if they want to know who U.S. Bank is, they can go out and get all the information that they need. Okay. Um, what about your, what about a landlord? Yeah, it's a, it's a legitimate concern to understand the strength of your landlord. Uh, by the way, by the way, it's, we frankly, uh, as landlords, have been asking more questions about the financial strength of tenants lately as well. I think both sides were burned, uh, you know, as the as the economy got worse. And I think it's only fair for both landlords and tenants to do appropriate due diligence on each other and to ensure that going forward uh, they feel comfortable with one another. Okay, we've been in a situation uh, where we are ex we're doing an early renewal on a lease, and so it takes it out seven years. And we find out that the owner is refinancing, only his refinancing is only good for three years. So all of these things are, are rather important uh, because we don't know in three years who's going to be our landlord. Uh, the, the big one that, that we're seeing is we're demanding self-help rights in, in our uh, leases. and. Landlords in the past have had a really hard time turning that over to a tenant for a number of reasons. And, and Todd, maybe you can kind of talk about why they don't like to do that. Uh, sure. I mean, it, it usually, uh, if, if a building, and we tend to work in very large Class A uh, trophy size buildings, they tend to all be multi-tenanted with uh, a lot of different size tenants, and it's pretty difficult to give every one of them self-help rights, particularly for a base building system that affects more, more space than just the tenant's uh, specific space. So particularly for a smaller tenant uh, who, uh, let's say the air conditioning doesn't work for a particular day, that small tenant wants to try and fix the air conditioning or fix the elevators, that tenant is not the only tenant affected by the base building system. It would be mayhem to give those self-help rights to every single tenant in the building uh, or, or indeed maybe even just to a single tenant. It may be mayhem. Um, uh, you know, what we do in order to try and make the tenants feel comfortable is we have explicit obligations of providing certain levels of service. 
And if we don't provide those levels of service, then we would be in default, and there are certain remedies that, can, that, can, uh, that, that the tenant gets the benefit of. Um, but it, it's, it is very difficult to give self-help rights. We've done it in limited cases for extremely large tenants uh, or for single occupants, you know, in a net lease situation, uh, when that tenant uh, has the self-help rights limited to their own space. But it's very difficult because of the multi-let nature of our properties to, to give more broad rights than that. And the quality of repairs probably would be an issue, too. You have no control over what repairs they might make. That's right. Okay. Uh, we have critical facilities. So if we had a roof leak and we had a uh, landlord that was in default, had no capital, uh, we, we have to have the right to repair those roofs. Um, you know, we've got one building, 21,200 square feet. It's got $79 million worth of equipment in it. Um, as a tenant, when we look at subleasing space, as tenants are downsizing and you sublease, you've got a worry that maybe your sublessee is not going to last. So that becomes a concern of us. And we're looking very hard at anybody that we would sublease space to. Uh, as a subtenant taking over space, it's just the reverse. We're looking at the prime tenant and wanting to know what their financials are like, what kind of condition they're in. We are auditing pass-throughs. This is not a new concept, but it is one that, that we're very focused, focused on right now, um, making sure that landlords are, are billing us what they should be billing us. Uh, we are refusing landlords' demands that auditors be paid hourly instead of on a contingency basis. This is an ongoing wrestle that we have with landlords. and. Um, uh, Todd, what's your position as a landlord on this sort of <coughs> lease clause? Uh, it's a difficult one for us. We, we, and every, look, every landlord-tenant relationship is different. We clearly want to make a deal where people can feel comfortable with moving into our properties. Uh, and we will work with people on different provisions like this uh, sometimes. But in general, we have found that contingency-based uh, fee generation has resulted in very, very long and drawn out audit uh, processes where no legitimate information was often found. However, the process took sometimes in excess of 12 months, and it's just a drain on management resources. Again, particularly in a large multi-let building uh, where we have sometimes an excess, actually we have one property in Chicago where we have about 240 tenants. Uh, and if we were to give those sorts of rights to each of those tenants or to even uh, you know, a handful, again, it could, it could just be a drain on management resources that would in, uh, impact our ability to provide the top-level service that we're accustomed to providing. Okay. And as many of you know, there are some new gap provisions that are about to be launched or look like they're about to be launched. Our company has been proactive in the way that we look at leases. And we are now not only looking at the base term, but we're adding all the option provisions to it. And <clears throat> what it does internally for our corporation is the value of the lease goes up so monumentally that we now need to take it through US Cellular, then we go up to TDS, and then it goes to the board before it gets completed. So um, our, our approval process is elongated. Uh, also, 
the way that a, a corporation treats their TIs is, you know, very important because in some cases, if they straight line it over the term of the lease, the, the structure of the lease can be a little more creative. Um, it, it, it may not make any difference what, what the TI is if we just get the lower lease rate. Bob, you want to speak about your experience and with other clients? Sure. Um, I would say our business has changed so, so substantially in the last two or three years, and the rules have changed, and I'm not even sure what the rules are half the time. <laughs> um, years ago, what we did primarily as brokers is we would find space for tenants, we would negotiate <laughs> rents, we would negotiate TIs, free rent, things of that nature. And while that's an important part of what we do, uh, our job today is really about risk mitigation and really sort of uncovering the issues surrounding the landlord. And I would say most of our time today is spent looking at the landlord and looking at the lender. Now, what are we doing differently today than we did years ago? Um, one example, we, first of all, it used to be where one individual broker would handle the entire assignment and would get the transaction done. Can't do that any longer for a large tenant. You've got to bring a team, a platform of people in that can do different things for the client. As an example, project management. Um, we're working on a transaction and we had our project management go in and look at the base building systems. Now, the base building systems in this case are in good condition, but you know, as these landlords, you know, their position gets diluted and their equity continues to erode, you have to ask yourself at what time at what point is the landlord not going to expend any more dollars for capital improvements? So that's important. Um, we're looking at the rent roll of the other of the uh, of the landlords to try to figure out when their rollover is. We're not doing it so that we can start cold calling these people. What we are trying to do is trying to look at what effect these tenants roll over is what the effect it's going to have to their underlying lease or their mortgage obligations. I would say if we're having any meaningful conversation. Um, with the landlord, we're including the lender from the get-go because everybody's busy and if we're spending time with a landlord that doesn't have any dollars, there's really no point in doing it. And many times the landlords, in, in some cases, particularly the smaller ones, aren't necessarily disclosing the chinks in the armor. So it, it's hard to uncover this information. So I would say it's risk mitigation, it's making certain that we escrow the tenant improvements, that we make certain the lenders on board, that we have the non-disturbance. Incidentally, it's very interesting, and Sandy and I were talking about this. So many files, if you go back to landlord's leases and you look back in the files, they have a subordination and non-disturbance agreement that's not signed by the lender. You know, it was sort of like, well, we'll get to it, and it's not signed. So haven't helped that situation where you really don't have any protection. So we're spending time looking at that, and then we're really trying to grant, and to your point, in a single tenant building or where we're the major occupant is get as much self-help as we possibly can get for the clients and, and those kind of remedies. Thanks, Bob. Um, it actually, and we just did an audit of all of our major properties um, because we had discovered that, that the SNDAs go out with the lease, you get the lease back signed or they went out after the lease and you never got the SNDA back. Uh, lender gives it, or the broker gives it to the landlord, the landlord gives it to the bank, and that's where it stops. 
So um, that would be, if you take nothing else home today, that would be something that you can do for your clients is to make sure they have an updated signed copy of an SNDA. I'll tell you, I mean, from the landlord perspective, we, it's in our interest to try and help the tenants get an SNDA, right? We have no problem trying to do that. And we, we expend a ton of energy in order to try and help the tenant get the SNDA. I'll, I'll admit that it's, uh, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, it often is a, you know, it often does just stop with the delivery of the document to the lender. And we've had, you know, uh, we've had problems to the point where we actually will not sign a lease that obligates us to get the SNDA. We will use commercially reasonable efforts to do so, but it's just out of our control. And it's, uh, you know, so it'd be interesting to hear actually from the lender perspective, particularly when there are loans with multiple parties, if they've been syndicated or, uh, you know, or securitized, which I guess could even be harder. We found it very hard to get SNDAs, even if there's nothing controversial in them. Uh, I don't know. Well, we, we clearly look at that as our, you know, our, our documentation site. We're leaning into our council as well, but we're, we're really going to be focused on if there's, um, you know, a dozen primary tenants that we're predominantly underwriting, we're going to focus and make absolutely certain that we get documents on, on those. Beyond that, it's, you know, what can we reasonably live with in the overall underwriting of the credit and closing and documentation of the loan. Uh, and, and I had to go back and, and call and write letters to every single uh, landlord and have them help me get those SNDA agreements back from, from the lender. Stan, would you like to jump in? <laughs> Thank you, Bill. That's true. Sure. Uh, Bill, SNDA, or Subordination Non-Disturbance Atonement Agreement, is an agreement between the tenant, the landlord, and the lender saying that, in, and from the tenant's perspective, primarily saying that in the event that the landlord forecloses on his interest uh, in its loan to the landlord, then it will continue to recognize the lease of the tenant and will not kick the tenant out as long as the tenant is not in default. So to simply put, that's what it is. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go into the Shahara law, and um, uh, I'm going to ask Stan to, if he would speak to this, because as I kind of prefaced, we've, we've, run, we've actually run into it. And with the shortage of American funds and the reluctance of lenders to lend in this kind of a market, you know, the overall question is, are we going to see more and more foreign money uh, be the source of financing? And if so, what does this particular clause mean? And what is it all about? Thanks, Sandra. Uh, first, thanks, Cornette and Margie and others for inviting me today, and thanks, Sandra, for asking me. Um, this is particularly relevant. Um, Sandra was uh, absolutely correct when she said that we currently are experiencing um, these issues in a couple of leases at the moment. So um, I think that when she asked me to talk today, she thought that if I looked into it, we might, um, we might find something really sexy out there as far as law that had unfolded. Unfortunately, I did not. <laughs> So I thought what I would do today is because she's talked sort of about, about the meat of the problem. I thought I might give you just a little basis of, of the, uh, what the uh, problem emanates uh, or could emanate. Uh, and um, Sandra and I probably should have uh, coordinated our pronunciation today. I've been calling it Sharia law, and 
Um, probably right. <laughs> in any event, um, what, what does a partner in a law firm do when he's faced with something he doesn't know anything about? He asks an associate to go out and find something. <laughs> uh, and and uh, he came back not with much, so I spent some time over the last couple of nights. And um, this is just one example of a typical uh, financing transaction where um, you might have an influx of some foreign money, and I just picked an Islamic um, um, uh, regime since that's what we were currently dealing with, but we know that money is flowing into the United States from all kinds of places throughout the world. There just happens to be a lot of Islamic money coming into the States now. And so you have, uh, at some point, a, a U.S. finance provider, i.e. a U.S. bank, that for some reason has an interest in property, uh, and that is usually because it has made a loan to the property owner of some sort. Uh, the property owner, as many of you know, may, may be underwater, uh, may not have rents that are paying, paying the, the, the um, or uh, providing payments for, for the loan, cash flow for the loan. And so many of them are looking across the seas for money. So along comes this Islamic venture, which basically would be something like a bank or a uh, set of foreign investors, uh, deep pockets who have put money together to uh, form a venture and invest in U.S. Um, real estate for the most part. And so you have this situation where U.S. banks find themselves, uh, in some cases, doing business with landlords that need to get money from sources that have non-traditional requirements. And some of you may know that the, the entire Islamic law with regard to finance is based on the fact that it does not charge interest. It, um, as nearly as I can tell, takes its, um, its uh, financial gain from the value of the property and the value of the investment itself. But uh, those Sharia documents do not have interest provisions in them. That is one of the basic tenets of Sharia law. So uh, what happens is that in order to uh, allow that venture to own some interest in the real estate, a, um, and I forgot we have a nice little uh, thing here. I could be doing that. I'm a, an electron, ele electronics dinosaur, so forgive me. Um, uh, the SPC there stands for a... Um, uh, uh, it is basically an organization that is a specific purpose corporation or something to own the property uh, as the fee title holder to the property. The U.S. has its loan to that SBC, and then the Islamic Venture funds its money into the SPC. The SPC continues to be the owner of the property, but it does a financing lease. It's not an outright loan as in the United States traditional terms of a loan from a lender to a, to a landlord. They do a financing lease. And so that financing lease, um, th there's a, quote, a money exchange between the financing lessor being the Islamic venture to the SBC. The SBC pays its loan obligation to the United States Bank with funds from that. Now there are some, obviously, U uh, US regulatory um, issues out there at play that are regulating what can and can't be done uh, many of you may know that U.S. banks cannot invest in real estate. They can only own real estate if they foreclose on real estate and in some other limited instances, owning their own facilities, that kind of thing. And so this uh, sole purpose vehicle in the center here uh, allows that U.S. bank upon foreclosure to own it. Um, so the lease then becomes between the Islamic venture and the tenant. And so you have a tenant, i.e. Sandra and U.S. Cellular, who are into, in a lease with this venture, that's the tenant lease there, that has a financing lease with this SBC, and then the American bank has an interest in that because they've made a loan to that entity. I hope that's somewhat clear. Um, I see some 
trucks around the room, so it may not be. But this was one of the simplest financing structures that I could find. There are about seven different um, Islamic structures out there, uh, and, and this is one that uh, I'm told is commonly used. Uh, as I said, the body of American law dealing with that structure, those kinds of structures, is fairly detailed because it's regulated by the Securities Commission. But once you pass that, um, there is not much law governing the issue that Sandra asked me to cover today, that is the, the problems that may arise between a landlord that has some controlling interest, be it just a loan or be it actual investors in the entity itself. And so I imagine that over the next several years there will be a fair amount of law developing as problems arise, as banks continue to foreclose, uh, let's hope not, but uh, I think that we'll probably, if we have this meeting a year or two from now, I would be able to, to talk about some actual cases that we had, have been able to find. Uh, I just listed for you some of the rental types of activities that um, when parties receive money from Islamic um, ventures that they cannot engage in uh, uh, to a large extent. I think many of them make e exceptions if small percentages of tenants are engaging in some of those activities, but they cannot in invest in, in buildings that are largely occupied by tenants doing any of these things, financial services, gambling, uh, manufacture, sell of non-halal products, and halal products means um, products that are lawful or approved, and haramba products are those that are not approved uh, under Islamic law. And some of those things Sandra and I talked about, they are the sale of alcoholic products, um, um, carnivorous animals, um, what else Sandra, uh, I'm going blank up here, but just a long list of things that are, that are not approved by halal and therefore a building cannot be substantially occupied by any of those tenants. So Stan, let me ask you a question. Yes. Assuming U.S. cellulars in a building like this, mm -hmm. and they want to sublease their space. This provision would have an impact on who they could sublease the space it to. It could. It could, and you're getting to my next slide. May I do this in order, Bob? I, well, I thought we were, this is how we rehearsed it. Um, in any event, um, in hotels and resorts, stock brokering, again, because their whole system is not based on interest and receipt of value from the, the, the money itself. The money is simply the, the uh, piece of... It's the methodology for getting things done. It's not how they make their profit in, in, in real estate. Um, since I was not able to become an expert for you in this area today, I thought what I would do is um, I did a little research to try to figure out how might I learn more about that part of it, even though Sandra and I are not particularly dealing with that part of it. It's where our problem may arise. Um, one of the entities that I found that um, is, is um, one of the leading associations in the country is this Association of Foreign Investors in Real Estate. There are a couple of articles that have been written on this, and I pulled them last night and was going to rush down to, um, to our duplicating department and have copies made for you all day because it was one of the few articles that I had seen that just sort of had step by step. But I thought, you know, I'd better call the association which owned the copyright to it and ask if they would be okay with my sharing that with you today with full copyright uh, disclosure made to you, and they said absolutely not. <laughs> But I gave you the information here. You guys can actually log on to their website and buy the article for $37.50. <laughs> it's capitalism in America. Um, again, as I said, not much law, though, dealing with the leasing transactions, but I will talk about what we think are the hotspots and where you as tenants, where you as brokers for tenants, where you as lawyers for tenants need to be focused. And that would be in the use clauses, that is, to make sure that uh, your use does not conflict with any of, uh, uh, of the, the uh, tenants that the Islamic banks are saying cannot 
happen in a building. This is on a going forward basis. And if you are already a tenant, which we are, we cannot agree to those kinds of covenants in our tenant documents. Uh, and so you have issues with use, both as to what you will do and, again, for what kind of tenants can be in the building, as I discussed on the last slide. Uh, they bury... Uh, they bury items in the rules and regulations, and many of you who review leases know that oftentimes the rules and regulations are exhibit X to the lease, and you don't get to it until 5 in the morning, or you don't get to it. And so item number 44 on the rules and regulations may have something restricting your use. I think, Sandra, in the one that we looked at, uh, we had some concern because I, uh, I, U.S. Cellular has a, an open barbecue pit, and they cook all kinds of nice food, including pork on their barbecue, uh, and, and I forget, is it given to uh, uh, employees or sold? I, you know, probably given. Okay, in any event, um, probably okay, but, but you know, when we had an almost cynical eye, that's the kind of thing that we were thinking of. Um, representations and tenant estoppel certificates. We, we were, you know, reviewing very carefully to make sure that none of the items that we have been concerned about in the lease itself had made into the tenant estoppel certificate, and we actually had to strike some things out because um, uh, we, were, we had concerns. And as Sandra mentioned earlier, in the SNDA provisions, this is very important. We're dealing with an issue right now where um, we're trying to make sure that in the event that um, in this particular um, slide, if there's a problem with the, tr with the financing here, we want to be certain that we as tenant can get a direct lease either with this SPC, which is an American-created organization, uh, sole purpose entity, or if the bank forecloses on this SPC, that we can have a direct lease between the tenant and the landlord. And that was absolutely unclear in the very complicated SNDA with which we were dealing. And so we've... Uh, uh, we're now on about version 8 of this document, and we're getting some pressure because they want to close tomorrow, and we're saying, well, we just can't agree to this stuff. We will deliver an, S an SNDA timely in accordance with our lease if you strike this stuff. We cannot agree to this because we don't know what it is. And the clause that really gave us concern was just as ambiguous as Sandra mentioned earlier, that the tenant and or its assignees and subtenants will comply or will not violate the lending criteria the investment criteria of the lender without telling us what those were. It was not attached to the lease or the proposed lease as an exhibit or anything. And so we could not unilaterally agree to that kind of thing and find ourselves kicked out as a tenant uh, next week. Now, in this particular instance, U.S. Cellular is a sole tenant in a very large facility, so the likelihood that they want to kick us out uh, is very low. But uh, as their attorney, I could certainly not be kicked out of my job because I allowed them to sign this. So we <laughs> fine. And then finally, I think Sandra mentioned earlier, we are also inserting into all of our new leases uh, renewal, on a renewal and a totally new basis uh, provisions that uh, making the landlord record warrant that it is not involved in any type of terrorist activities or any of its investors or owners. Thank you. Um, I'm going to turn this over to Don because we, we want to get everybody up here and then it, it will have some questions afterwards perhaps. Thank you. What I thought I would do is kind of frame my comments based on uh, U.S. Bank and our position within the financial industry because uh, our comments are simply uh, as a super regional or, or national bank. Um, we're headquartered in Minneapolis. We have about $281 billion in uh, assets. We're the fifth largest bank in the country. 
a very good credit rating. That's why we don't get the calls from the landlords and the tenants to ask for our financials. Uh, our tier one uh, capital ratio is really good at 9.6, well capitalized is 6%. Uh, and this is an important slide, the next two, and I think if there's any positive in my comments today, maybe uh, this is it. And really, at the end of the day, what this chart is saying is these are uh, charge-off ratios and non-performing assets. And you see them leveling off. And I think uh, that's the positive. I think the financial industry uh, as a whole, but there are certainly uh, pockets that are starting to see some signs of hope. And if there are signs of hope, they'll start lending again. This slide is uh, really just a... Uh, a percentage of the deterioration. So as uh, the percentage decreases, it means things are getting worse at a slower pace or at a better pace. Um, our real estate platform is national. Uh, we have $24 billion in commitments and so on and so forth. Uh, between, between 2000 and 2007, $1.8 trillion of new debt was added. That's a staggering number. That came from banks other credit sources, but as you can see, uh, the CMBS market was very, very active. That was a large source of financing for landlords, uh, which, uh, uh, um, which, which ultimately built new buildings and put tenants in space. Uh, but you can also see when the bubble occurred. Uh, and it is just, it's dramatic to look at this slide. Um, between uh, Today, in 2014, we've got about $770 billion of loans maturing. Who's going to refinance it? This, therein lies the crux of the problem. Um, we keep hoping you will. <laughs> well, we're, we're going to try and do our part, but we're not all $770 billion. Uh, many of these loans that are maturing are underwater, meaning that the value of the real estate won't support the underlying debt. So what happens? Banks have to take write-downs. We have to mark to market our balance sheet. Some of the banks that got into the real estate space in a big way um, had more real estate as a, a percentage of their tier one capital. They're dealing with problems. They can't afford to write down uh, their loans or mark to market. That impacts their, uh, uh, their capital ratios. And ultimately, if they can't survive, the feds are gonna come in and close, uh, close banks. I'm not suggesting that the feds shouldn't continue to close banks, but I think what they also have to do is take a look at what role banks play in communities, uh, whether it's small community banks here in the Chicago area or throughout America. Uh, because they don't meet tier one capital ratios, maybe it's not the right thing to do to, uh, to close the bank. We've re recently uh, acquired nine banks, through uh, one of which is in Chicago, through a federally assisted transaction. Uh, whether it was the right thing to do, that's not, that's not for us to say. The Fed closed them. Uh, it's, it's, we're going to continue to see that. We're going to con continue to see a consolidation of the industry. We're going to continue to see uh, more institutions uh, uh, closed. The list of problem banks uh, continue to increase. So what does that all mean? Banks are really worrying about survival at this point, not about lending. And we're dealing with our problems. U.S. Bank is very, very healthy, but yet we're very distracted in dealing with the underlying uh, problems. We're acting as a landlord. We're acting as uh, brokers. We're uh, you know, trying to get rid of kind of the distractions that will allow us to increase our lending efforts. Um, 
But it's really tough when you uh, have somebody come in and says, I've got a loan at ABC Bank. Um, you look at the underwriting and you say, yeah, you're going to need to pay it down $10 million. That's a problem generally. So that's why I think there's been this seize of commercial real estate loans uh, in the marketplace, whether it's here in Chicago or across the country. Um, where do we go? Um, you know, until we see some economic growth and until we see a stabilization in our financial markets, banks are going to be really hard pressed to lend. Um, there are some good, uh, good signs uh, out there on the horizon. Um, uh, the Fed's Beige Book uh, report indicated that the economy is starting to grow. Manufacturing data is looking positive. Some real estate markets are stabilizing. Uh, so there's some positive things. Life companies are uh, another really good source of permanent debt, although it's under their terms, which is generally leveraged at 60% or less of today's values. Real estate since uh, the peak in 2007 has devalued about 40%. So if you had an 80% loan based on a 2007 execution, you know, I haven't done the map, but that's about a 35% loan to value today. And it's, uh, it's really difficult to make those metrics work. CMBS on the slide that I showed previously, uh, many of the major banks are starting up their CMBS platform. Uh, there's been some closings. There's not been much in the way of securitization. I think the jury is still out as to whether um, the CMBS market is back. If it is back, it's going to have to be fundamentally changed. Back in the 2005 to 2007 um, uh, time frame, they were doing full leverage, interest only, no recourse, obviously, uh, uh, and just really not fundamentally sound underwriting standards. So if it does come back, it's going to be dramatically different. Uh, life companies, I mentioned, now you have hedge funds, private equity, credit groups that are out there looking at providing debt to the marketplace. They're going to enter the fray. Um, yep, that's it. Um, so what's it going to take for lenders to lend? Um, I got to go to my notes because I really had to think hard about this. Um, um, you know, I, I think lenders have to, banks in general, have to really get their own uh, institution uh, in shape, get rid of the distractions, mark to market their portfolio. We were at an offsite and Sam Zell spoke. And if you remember Sam Zell, uh, I think he coined the phrase, stay alive to 95. Well, he introduced his most recent phrase, um, uh, you must come clean by 2013. I don't think it's 2013, but I don't know how you could get 2011 to rhyme with that phrase. But, uh, but, but I, think, I think it's, not that I would disagree with Sam, but uh, I, I think it's got to happen earlier. I think it's got to happen this year and into 2011. Otherwise, there's a looming commercial real estate crisis that most people believe will hit in second quarter of 2011. If that happens, all bets are off. I think it could be even worse than we're seeing today. Um, the government is very uh, critical of us bankers. This is the first time I've been in public since uh, uh, we, uh, we uh, repaid TARP. Um, all but six, and this is, you know, this is public perception, all but six of the banks have repaid TARP. I think if you asked anybody, they'd say, you know, banks get paid million dollar bonuses, not me. Uh, but, you know, most of the banks have repaid TARP. The 19 largest bank holding companies had to go through a stress test. That was our company. So the government put us all through some very rigorous uh, steps, probably rightfully so. But now I think it's time to get off our back and let, her, let us do our job, uh, maybe ease up on the regulatory uh, 
uh, constraints for all of us to, to get out there and lend in the marketplace. The small and mid-sized banks, however, have not been subject to these stress tests. And that's really, I think, where most of the risk is. We, you know, I've heard the phrase uh, zombie banks. They're, out, they're, they're walking around dead and they don't even know it yet. Um, that's where I think the government's going to have to change how they're looking at closures of, uh, of, of financial institutions, specifically to my comment, those that serve a purpose in the communities uh, that, that they're in. Um, so in, in, in closing, I think uh, only when the economic expansion starts to occur, because if you don't have job growth, if there is an expansion, there is going to be a need for more office space, more development, uh, expansion of uh, tenant space. Will the banks come back, grow, provide capital at reasonable terms, and uh, everybody get back to a happier place? Thanks, Don. Yeah. Um, I, I would like to have Todd give his perspective on this um, Sure. Uh, I, I, for those of us who, who don't know Tishman Spire, just give a little bit of uh, an advertisement for 30 seconds. Uh, Tishman Spire is the, uh, one of the world's largest uh, owners and investors in, in office real estate primarily. We're a New York-based company famous for owning uh, such trophy assets, the Chrysler Building, Rockefeller Center, and the MetLife Building. Uh, we luckily sold the Lipstick Building before the Madoff investigation <laughs> happens. We feel pretty good about that one. Uh, in Chicago, we happen to also be the largest landlord, uh, largest private landlord, uh, with about 12 million square feet downtown. Um, and uh, uh, you know, we're, uh, look, we're, we're clearly not immune to what's happened in the market. Uh, it, you know, I, I don't think we fundamentally disagree that for most assets in real estate, the, the decline has been pretty steep. And so we're sort of on both sides of the equation here, right? With, with a, uh, you know, we, we, we invest in our properties through a series of private equity funds. Uh, for all of the funds that have invested uh, portions of capital in the 2006-2007 time, frame, time frames, uh, look, we lost value in those assets. Uh, you know, I, I think everyone did, right? And we're not immune to that. For, uh, however, we still have about $2 billion of equity capital still available to invest. And we're, uh, we're, we're dancing around right now, right? We're, we're excited about the opportunity we think will be a generational opportunity to create uh, true wealth for our investors. And we have a fiduciary responsibility to them to do so, and, and we, we're, we're excited about doing that. I think um, the, the, the question of whether the, the real estate crisis is still looming in the future, I, 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 I think it's still an open question. But I'll tell you, I'm personally sleeping a lot better than I was last year. Right, so you know, a year ago this time, I probably wasn't sleeping at all. Uh, and uh, you know, we, were, we were concerned about the, the very existence of our, all of our lenders. We had done uh, a lot of deals over the, the course of our history with some uh, great institutions such as uh, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, the American International Group, AIG, uh, and they've been, they were great lending partners of ours for, for decades. Uh, and uh, you know, they no longer exist. And, and it created a, you know, a clearly created some difficult environments for us to operate real estate in, to purchase new real estate in, and to sell real estate into. Um, so we, uh, we're actually now, we're about, uh, it's the last, I think we, we haven't purchased a, a new acquisition in the United States since, uh, since June of 2007. So it's really, we're coming on to three years without having done that. Uh, we have started selling a few assets, uh, in, including locally, um, but, but we haven't purchased, and we've started purchasing again outside of the US. So we, we just did a, a fairly large transaction in Paris uh, we've also been purchasing and, and actually developing outside of the country, in, uh, primarily in Brazil, although we do have a, a large India and China business as well. Um, so uh, we're, we're sort of seeing, we're, we're seeing a lot of 
transaction activity that's pent up and that's waiting to happen. I think we, not unlike uh, many other reputable borrowers, borrowers who have a good operating platform, have, uh, have solved many of our pending loan maturities. So in, in Chicago, for example, where you know, we, like everyone else who drank that hose of Kool-Aid that was coming down, you know, we, we leveraged a lot in 2005, 2006, and 2007. Uh, with, uh, I don't want to say with as much debt as the lenders would give us, that's not quite true. We, we never really broke the 75% barrier, and sometimes we're lower. Um, so we, we were never the 90% guys that, that, that were out there. Uh, but we, um, we had uh, upcoming maturities that were supposed to, to start really in the 2009 through 2011 timeframe. We have now either signed a new loan agreement with those lenders to extend the maturity out a minimum of three years, or are in active negotiations where we've, we've agreed a term sheet and are working through the legal documentation on every single one of them. So if you look back to sort of where we were a year ago to where we are now, I, I, I sleep great right now. And I think that I'm not unique. In other words, I think there are a lot of landlords out there, a lot of your borrowers, who have been successful in negotiating extensions. Uh, and I think uh, that what hopefully what that means is that as the low level of interest rates has enabled banks to earn their way out of a crisis right, and build up their, bank their, 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 their book values and their balance sheets, they, in general, the lenders, particularly balance sheet lenders, have been working with borrowers, particularly borrowers with an operating platform, to extend their loans out. Uh, and that's enabled us to divert or avert, sorry, the, the worst of the crisis. And I think time will tell uh, as to whether transaction activity happens again. And when it does, because I think it inevitably will, for those of you investment brokers out there, I think it eventually will happen. Um, and I, th I think there will actually be a lot of good opportunities both for sellers and for buyers. It is a tale of two worlds. And I think that you know, the recent transaction activity in the market, both from a lending perspective and an investment perspective, has been entirely focused on the core assets. Those assets that are extraordinarily well leased for as long as you, know, as long as you can think about uh, with great credit tenants. Um, and those assets have been trading, you know, in, in, everyone, in Chicago we haven't yet seen that, although there's now an asset 300 North LaSalle, is a phenomenal development that competitors and Heinz did. You know, that's now on the market as we all saw yesterday. I think that's an interesting barometer for the market. It's now the largest asset in the U.S. that's on, on the market for office space. Um, in D.C. we saw an asset recently trade at $800 a foot. In, uh, in Boston there was a medical office building that was trading in the six, cap range, six to six and a half cap range. Uh, so, you know, People have had short memories, and we're seeing that, that, that investment values, particularly for your well-leased product, have definitely held up or at least recovered from their lows a year ago. Thank you. I, um, can I have the gizmo there? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, Bob, would you like, have you got more to add to? You know, I, I think the only thing I would, I think the only thing that I want to know, and it's unknowable at this point, are who are the owners of the future going to be? And I was talking to one of our people in Arizona the other day, and I said to him, who is the owners of the future? And he, he made a comment that you, you might as well just throw away your Rolodex. Now, that may be an overstatement, probably is an overstatement. But the biggest issue that we're trying to figure out is who is the owner going to be? Because that's what we're most concerned about in the future. And, you know, when you see these notes coming due and you see these notes being purchased, I mean, maybe hedge funds are going to buy them. Maybe they're going to foreclose on the note, and maybe they're going to come in there. I mean, there's money to be made, without a doubt. The question that I think the corporations are concerned about is, 
who the lenders and who the owners are going to be and how can they protect themselves in a very, very volatile environment. And that, to me, is the biggest challenge we all have today. And, and just as a, a final comment up here, and then maybe we'll, we'll take some questions, but, it, you know, as a tenant, we're pushing the landlords hard. We're, we're beating them up. It, we're, we're wanting low rents. But I have a concern, because I've been on all sides of the business, is what that does to the capital budget and what that does to the conditions of the building and the landlord's capabilities of operating the buildings as they should be operated. So, and, and you know you have a point as a broker, how far do you push? And if it's a win-lose transaction, it's not good for anybody. So you don't want to set this, the owner up to fail because at the end of the day, your client fails from that. So. All right, do we have any questions from the audience? Kahan. Uh, I, I was born in Iran and I was 16 years old, so I was born in a Muslim country. And on that, what you uh, discuss, I think there's a lot more uh, issues other than just they cannot rent to these type of tenants, mm -hmm. uh, especially women. So I think uh, the Sharia law has more uh, specific uh, Issues on the what they what you said what you mentioned it, it's more than that. You follow? It's it's you had limited information on that. I don't know where you got that information, because Sharia law is more stricter than just not re uh, renting it to certain uh, uh, corporations who are involved in certain things, like uh, for example, banks. Banks uh, lend money with interest. Uh, or uh, how uh, women are, are actually treated as being a, a, a tenant or being a, an owner. So, so yeah, no, my, my intention uh, was not to try to deal with the entire body of Islamic law. It's a huge body as is American law. I just tried to pull out what I found to be some of the major premises of uh, what was happening with um, buildings in the, in the U.S. Um, so, I, I've so never if, even if seen I that intended, provision. If, it, it, it was the first time I ever saw the provision in terms of the Sharia law. I knew nothing about it. And there was yeah. just a little yeah, sentence There's a lot it. more on Sharia law, which is, uh, is a lot worse than what you see, what oh, you sure. just mentioned. Well, ba basically, the Sharia law is, is based on the rules of the Quran, and we didn't, yes. you know, we didn't talk about that. That's kind of the white elephant that we, you know, didn't want to talk about very much. But I, I think the issue is whether or not uh, U.S. law overrides uh, this sort of thing, and whether or not it is a real issue. And I think Stan had stated that we haven't seen enough of this that what the implications are or whether it's been litigated. Is that, am yeah, I stating that right. correctly? Yeah, um, there, there, there's pages and pages on the, the front end of this stuff, as I mentioned. Uh, and I did not, um, you know, try to even delve far enough to understand all the tenets of Islamic law. I pulled out sort of the fancy part of it. But um, any article that you go to, I read it, I actually pulled one law review article and I, messed around. I made, made a mistake and hit print before I saw how many pages it was, it was actually 300 pages. So um, my printer was clogged up for the next 20 minutes because I couldn't That's stop. That's how we feel when you guys send us contracts. <laughs> well, we do that for different reasons, though. Thank you. Yes, thank you Thanks. for the question. Hi, RJ Brennan, IA Interior Architects. 
You know, if the recession and the, uh, the shutdown of the capital markets was the only thing that was affecting uh, the real estate and, and corporations, you know, we'd probably have a blessing. Uh, but what we've seen in, in uh, some of the talks I've, I've been involved in is that there's a fundamental change in the way that large corporations, and even more specifically the GSA, is looking at occupying space. Uh, GSA is looking at, you know, with 10,000, uh, just 10,000 of their employees of being able to have uh, telework programs that are 100% uh, utilized. The uh, uh, HP is looking at substantial changes in the way they occupy space, looking at programs that, re that involve 50% reduction in, in total square footage, and then moving from what they currently have to a 90% utilization rate of that, of that square footage. Uh, Ernst and, and Young is not quite as aggressive, but again, similar things. There's legislation in place regarding telework mandates that will affect government workers. Uh, and, and as you've seen with Green and others, uh, those, those mandates have gone from government onto the private sectors. So again, there are a whole series of other things that are affecting the potential valuations of, of property and the growth of, uh, of use of real estate. My question is focused on FASB 13 and the potential impact of that going into play and what might further uh, contribute to reductions in the value of uh, real estate property values. And who's going to answer that? <laughs> You're, a lot there. I guess you, you were telling me uh, in the beginning that, that I think your company has already chosen to comply yeah. with the FASB 13 regulations even before they've actually fully come into effect. Which and, is, uh, it's the first tenant we've heard of. We, we have because we have already gone through a restatement and we don't ever want to do that again. So we're, we're being forward thinking on the accounting portion. But, um, you know, you, and maybe I'm jumping to something that wasn't included in, in what you were saying, but it does bring up another tenant landlord issue, and that is utilizing um, less space for more people, which increases the load factor on your HVAC system. And I know that, you know, we're kind of wrestling with that a little bit. We've got more people in less space. And then, you know, when they're hot and we call the landlord and scream about our services, uh, it becomes an issue. I actually think what's happening is probably going to be good for companies like Tishman Spire. Because if you look at the product that's out there today, the A, B, and C, tenants are gravitating towards A quality buildings because of the, the point you just made which is you need a more robust building, you need HVAC, and you need the amenities uh, and the infrastructure that is going to allow a tenant to really pack them in, because yeah. they are packing them in. And the Class A owners, I mean, the landlords uh, of that quality that are buying Class A buildings, so what if you pay a buck more square foot? If you're in a better building and it's going to, and it's going to allow you to operate your business, I would do that all day long. That leads me to a good question here that you both talked about earlier about win-win. And I'm going to use the word compassion negotiations. You know, we're all on a point now that we've all been beat up. Rental rates, fees, cost, furniture, everything's down at the bottom. So a quick question to each of you right down the, the panel. How compassionate, compassionate negotiating are you now? Or are you just going through the throat? Or are we at least trying to be a little bit more compassionate to create the win-win, pay an extra dollar a foot because it's the right thing to do. It's the right location. It's the right product solution for a client. Because I'm hearing everything about cost, cost, cost. When are we going to start to all bring the value of things back up again and not be so driven by cost? Well, you know, 
I'll, I'll start down here because as a tenant, that's a that's a tricky um, that's a tricky question because I've got people at the top that aren't real estate people and they're looking at the quarterly uh, financials and they want to save money, save money, save money. I, as a real estate person, I am aware that you know there there is there is a break point that you should do and. You know, I try to bring that reason to the hierarchy of the corporation. Um, is it working? Not always, but but I try, and and Bob knows that about me. I I don't want to to drive a deal so low that I know I'm not acting in the best interest of my people in that building. I I think there's a disconnect. I mean, the reality of the, the corporate world is. There's a disconnect between the guy in the corner office and the people that are doing the work, the real estate people. And they're looking at their share price, they're looking at their NOI, they're looking at all those things that bring the stock up. So um, I think many of the real estate people get it, Sandy gets it. Um, but I don't think it gets translated or the guys in the corner office don't really understand the impact it's playing because they're just not in our world. I mean that's, and I don't think, I think good brokers today realize that you can't grind. I mean, you know, the mentality 20 years ago, and there were certain people in the industry, was grind them until you can and then do it again. And I think today that just doesn't work. And I think if you're going to have negotiations, you've got to be pretty intelligent about how you approach it rather than just say, this is what I want. Any other questions? I've got, I've got one just... Uh, over the last four years, uh, nearly every trophy building and maybe a good portion of the B buildings have traded in the United in, in Chicago downtown. Last year, only one traded, um, but the average term of a commercial real estate loan is 30 months. That means we're coming up on that refinancing here in Chicago, real local issue, right? So for Todd and Don, um, if the CMBS doesn't ramp up real fast, and banks won't do a portion of those buildings more than 20 million, and nobody wants to join syndicates to do 200, 300, 400 million dollar buildings. How are we going to get through this? And what advice do you have in that backdrop for the tenant who is trying to sign a 10-year lease when you know that the loan is coming due next year? I mean, I, I, I'll speak personally. Uh, everyone's going to extend. I mean, to the extent that, uh, well, I agree with your point that banks in general are having more difficulty or, or more reluctance, at least, to make uh, loan, new loans that are over $20 million, unless there's a syndicate, with the, with the exception, as Don pointed out, of some of the life companies, who are they're the insurance companies who are making, uh, willing to make large commitments. The fact is that, that most lenders out there, particularly, again, if they have a borrower who is actually operating, who is, who is performing and leasing space at market, whatever market may be, and, you know, keeping the buildings in good condition and doing all the other you know, good things. Um, the banks are extending. And in some cases, it's because they are extending and pretending. I'm not sure if Sam Zell came up with that or if someone else coined that phrase. But, but I think banks have been extending and pretending. And, for other, and, and other times, it's not pretending. It's they really believe that the best course of action for their collateral is to allow the borrower party more time uh, to continue leasing space. And so we, as you know, one group of landlords, again, have successfully negotiated all of our upcoming maturities and now have anywhere from three to five years left minimum. Right? So while it's true that we don't have, uh, in, in 
some cases we don't have 10 or 15 year loans. Um, that's often a strategy, right? That we choose not to go longer term because we want the benefit of the low floating rate. And we want the ability to sell when the market recovers. Uh, as to the question of the tenancy, I think, again, it's a question of what building you choose to invest in as a tenant, what building you choose to move into, who is the current landlord, and what quality of building is it, and do you think that the quality of building that you've chosen to move into will ultimately be attractive to a next landlord upon sale? And I think, you know, I sort of you know, agree with what's been said, that the, the up, now is a great time to upgrade in the quality of building. Uh, those will be the buildings that will ultimately be able to maintain their value, increase in value, uh, be able to provide more efficiencies in space, be able to provide more amenities, be able to provi you know, provide more of a green uh, or, or environmentally friendly environment. I think it's a great time to upgrade in quality of building. And I think if you do that, those buildings will be the ones that are maintained and are, and are attractive either for the current investor or for a new investor group. Any um, other questions? <coughs> Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. Um, you know, Rick, we, we talked earlier. I mean, with, with us, our strategy on maturing debt is to, number one, uh, determine whether our sponsor is engaged and capable of, of uh, continuing on with that asset if it's a performing asset. If it is, a, is not a performing asset, our general course of action is foreclosure. And that's where I think tenants today, uh, as we've all talked up here, really have to do their homework. Uh, it, it is role reversal. But, uh, you know, we don't want to own real estate, you know, so we're going to do everything we can to extend uh, and try and get what we can to remargin and provide a go-forward strategy with them. We're, we're a partner with them, whether we like it or not. Their equity is probably evaporated, so they don't really have much to gain. But if they're engaged, if it's a trophy asset, you know, we're, we're going to stay in and play with them and, and do what we can. We're not going to do a a 10-year non-recourse loan, but we're going to probably do two to three years. And, and the surprising part, I think I mentioned earlier, is nobody knew what the special servicers were going to do on, on, on the CMBS debt. We all thought that they'd take a hard road and just say, you got to pay us off or we're going to take the property. They have uh, shown time and time again to cooperate, extend loans to get through this. We're all going to be better off for that. Don, I've been asked by, by someone outside of this group, to ask a question of the banks. And that is, with properties being foreclosed upon, it seems the banks are, are trying to work those properties out uh, internally. Why are you not hiring more real estate experts to help you dispose of foreclosed properties? You know, we have a group called Special Assets. And uh, that's where, when an asset has deteriorated to the point where my group can't probably get it through to the other side, we move it to our workout world, Special Assets. I don't know what's so special about it. But um, uh, we just recently hired 140 new people in that group. And it's because of the influx of, through some acquisitions, but the influx of uh, uh, credits going uh, into that group. What what they do then is have to engage a professional outside counsel and partnership through, uh, depending on the asset class. So they have, we don't have that expertise for the most part. Um, and it, I know for US Bank, I think we need to do a better job in that regard. Uh, but this is something, you know, it hasn't snuck up on us. It's only been going on for two years. But I think it's, it's evolving to the point where you know, we don't want to be a landlord or a broker. We need to go out and seek help. And, and most banks do that, I think, for the most part. Sandra, we, um, 
recently for a very healthy bank um, held a series of seminars for, for their REO group, which they, they have just added about 35 lawyers to deal with foreclosed properties. And many of those lawyers came from other parts of the bank. Some of them were hired from outside, but they did not have particular experience in uh, you know, owning real estate. Many of them were stepping into uh, lease situations where they were having you know, managed build out for tenants. They had never done necessarily construction type work before. So the, the goal of that seminar was to train this, this real estate group within a bank to own real estate. Well, God knows that I love the attorney, Stan. You know this. But, but are they the ones to put market value on the properties? And I guess that was you know, a, a, my question leaning towards real estate. People who are out there in the field know what the markets are, know what the trading prices are. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree with Don. Banks don't want to own real estate. But in many cases, they have no options. Uh, so you know, they, they, for some period of time, have to own it. And I think the goal of this particular bank was to be able to own it as efficiently as possible for the period that it has to own it. What we have to be careful about is don't go to the RTC days where they were fire, fire selling large volumes of real estate, driving down prices, and creating right. uh, really a, 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 a very negative uh, a position. It has to be orderly. I think it's it's going to be, uh, you know, if we end up with a property, we're going to get guidance from the right people to uh, dispose of the asset in any way that we can. All right, any other questions out there in the audience? Thank you. You've been a great audience today, and we appreciate it. Thank you, Sandra. Excuse me. Thank you, Sandra. Thanks, everybody, for participating today. We do have, um, I did want to thank uh, Margie Kurkowski from Wright uh, Haramar Architects, who was instrumental today in putting this panel together and quarterbacking the entire effort across the board. Please fill out your surveys. Again, uh, thank you for, your, for coming today, and we will see you next month.